Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad fil awwaleen wa salli alayhi fil akhirin. Wa salli alayhi fi kulli waqtin waheen wa salli alayhi ya Rabbana fil mana'i la'ala ila yawmiddin. Salatu wa salamu alayka ya Sayyidi ya Rasulullah. So, this is session number 16 of Futuwa, Noble Character, Character by Dr. Rajab Santurk. And I believe we're going to finish today, inshaAllah. I think we're on 37. 37? Approach people with good judgment. Talk to everyone according to their degree of knowledge. I think that's where we left off. We didn't, did we finish it? If you were the people who are richer than you, oh yeah. Okay, number 38. <clears throat> I think there's only 40, yeah. Okay, it's entirely possible that I'm gonna get lost on a tangent on 38. But hopefully I won't go too far and we can finish, inshallah. Bismillah. Qala al-musannifu hafidhuhullahu ta'ala wa nafa'anallahu yahu bi'ulumi fi darain ameen. Obey legitimate leaders and consult with competent persons. Subhanallah. Sometimes the Qadr is just too much. That's why I said I could get lost on a tangent on this one. Qadr is just too much sometimes. Obey legitimate leaders, ulul amri, and consult with competent persons. Ulul amri means legitimate leaders. Obeying orders have different degrees based on the order's permissibility and the leader's legitimacy. It is obligatory to obey the legitimate orders of legitimate leaders. However, it is not obligatory to comply with illegitimate leaders. It is also haram to obey an illegitimate order, no matter who it comes from, whether from a legitimate or illegitimate leader. Okay, so we have two issues. Legitimate, Ill illegitimate, leader and order. Okay, so... Uh, Basically what he's saying is that if there's a legitimate leader, there's a legitimate order, it's obligatory to follow it. Okay? If there is an illegitimate leader, then it's not obligatory to follow it. It is haram to follow an illegitimate order. So illegitimate order would be someone's commanding you to do something that's not acceptable. Right? <coughs> there is a manager in almost every setting and these managers have ranks. SubhanAllah. Um, uh, it's too much. The Qadr is too much. I can't tell you why. It would end up in too much tangent. At home, Ulul Amri is the father who is the head of the family. In his absence, the mother becomes the legitimate leader. Similarly, the list of legitimate leaders includes the teacher at school, the manager in the workplace, or the head of an institution. In all of these cases and more, obeying them is a religious duty. 
However, this obedience has its limits, for there is no unlimited obedience to anyone except to Allah. The leader's orders should not contradict Allah's orders. If it does, the leader's orders become invalid. Therefore, it is not virtuous to justify your actions by saying, we are just following orders, and follow all orders of superiors regardless of whether they are right or wrong. Every person is religiously and morally responsible in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this responsibility can never be delegated either to superiors or to anyone else. Okay. So this point has two layers. Number one layer is this one about obeying legitimate leaders. Number two layer is consult with competent persons. So we didn't get to the second one yet. Just the first one is obey legitimate leaders. The reality of the world is that everything has order. Everything has order, everything has hierarchy. And if you don't have order, you don't have hierarchy, you have just a bunch of insanity. This person does this thing here, this person does that thing there, this person does whatever they feel like. And actually, a lot of times in our communities, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we have some sort of semblance of this. It's like a borderline anarchy all the time. In many community spaces. Not every culture is the same, not every space is the same, but in many community spaces you see this. And it's kind of like every person who has any idea that they feel like, ideas are good, I'm not saying that, uh, or any opinion or whatever it might be, they feel that they're justified at some level of doing that thing. You know? It's kind of like a week or two ago when I had that tangent about the imam, and I was mentioning that the salah in the masjid does not start at the time of the iqamah in the masjid. This is not what the books of fiqh stay. There's, no, there's, the, there's nothing in the book of fiqh that says the asr time is at 4.15 because that's the time that's written on the wall in the masjid and that's when you pray. There's, that's, not, that's, that's not what's in the books of fiqh, right? What's in the books of fiqh is asr time is when the imam comes and he tells you to make iqamah and start the salat. Because asr time is connected to the imam. So it's not just whenever the people feel like it. Um, so this idea, it's, and again, it's really funny because in every other area of life, we understand it. We know that when we go to work, there's a manager. There's usually a manager that's above the manager. There's someone who's above that. Eventually it ends somewhere, right? But we understand that it, there's certain things I have the agency to do them on my own accord. And there's certain things I have to check with the appropriate party to figure out what it is that I'm going to do, right? I can do or I cannot do. School is the same, work is the same, family life is the same, everything is the same. When it comes to community life, then it's like well, democracy gone wild. Even democracy is the same. Right? Like there's local representatives, there's state representatives, there's federal representatives, there's, there's still a hierarchy even to the democracy. So the point here is that when there's legitimate leadership, and they give legitimate guidance, and we have to follow it. One of the places where this gets a little bit confusing in Muslim community life can be because really we have two levels of authority. Okay, so. One of the things that's unique about the Prophet ﷺ and then the first couple rulers after him is that the religious authority and the political authority are in the same person. Right? So with the Prophet ﷺ, he's the Khalifa 
religiously and practically. You know, he's the one who's in charge, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And of course that's the same with Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. It's the same with Sayyidina Umar, with Sayyidina Uthman, and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu majma'in. It's the same with Sayyidina Hassan. Uh, that largely also comes together with Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz radiallahu anhu majma'in. But for the most part, oftentimes that was split. In, on, a, on, a, on a political, like on a state level. But in a religious institution, for example, you might still have an understanding. Like Shaykh al-Azhar, for example, is not just the like, religious end-all of Mashaykh al-Azhar, of the institution of al-Azhar. He's actually the political head, in a sense, like using political, he's the administrative head of al-Azhar. Right? Like everyone is going to report to him in the end. And so sometimes this can be together, sometimes it can be separate. The point is that if we have legitimate leadership, we should follow it. And that if the guidance that we're getting is illegitimate, we're not allowed to just become pawns. Right? Like, okay, I, someone gives me orders or whatever, and I just say, no, I'm just following orders. No, you're not allowed to just follow orders. You should have some level of knowledge and independence and and courage and strength and so on that enables the person to say, no, this is not acceptable. I'm not going to do this thing. This isn't the way that it should be done. And then in between, there's a lot of, you know, we have to figure that out. It's the tension of life. Um... Now, sometimes in organizational issues, you can have this tension between religious leadership and organizational leadership, right? What we should remind ourselves is that, especially in like religious type spaces, the religious leader, it's, it's so hard to talk about these things, subhanAllah. Anytime you talk about it, people think you're like, it's self-serving, you know? Uh, but Alhamdulillah, our teachers gave us a rule on this, which is that when, it, when it's applying to yourself, then you don't do anything about it, you just leave it. But when you see it done to someone else, then you can stand up for them in that case, you know? So sometimes we leave a lot of things for ourselves, but maybe you see it to someone else. So this is now, we're talking about the principle. Principle is that if you have a religious organization or something and that has spiritual leadership and has administrative leadership, the spiritual leadership has higher priority. They should never be marginalized in the sake, for the sake of uh, administrative um, considerations or strategies and stuff like this. This would be a failure, actually. And this you see a lot of times. Uh, you see this idea that like people of knowledge are just kind of employees that are meant to just do the will of the managing body of the organization. <coughs> and that's, of course, there's people who have to manage. But there's a way to do it, right? That's, that's still respectful and still uh, appropriate. One of the issues here that I've, I've been uh, kind of like adamant about for the last 12, 13 years is that we should have some sort of understanding of what kind of religious titles we're giving to different people and why. And once we have some sort of understanding of it, we shouldn't infringe upon it. So, uh, and, and we've talked about this before. So I'll tell you my, my general breakdown on this. My general breakdown on this is an imam. It's a relatively clear title. There's someone who leads a community. 
Simple. Imam is someone who leads community, they lead salat, something like that. Alhamdulillah, it's clear. At its base level. Actually, at its kind of like very traditional level, Imam is a higher title than that. Imam is probably the highest title, actually on like a purely traditional level. Like Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, they're, they're not. But in a practical like American Muslim experience type thing, this is how it's kind of played out. And even in other places, it's kind of played out this way too. Second title is this Ustad, Ustad the title. Okay. Generally, I personally, and I think some others, will use this title for someone who has either completed the equivalent of two to three years of formal Islamic studies training, or maybe like a year less than that, but they're on route to do like a six or seven year program. You understand what I'm saying? So some people that do a three-year program, for example, alhamdulillah, it's fine. Someone else, they might be doing a seven-year program, but they're like in year two. This person also, you know, we can uh, use a stat for them until it's kind of understood where they're at. Then the next title would be Sheikh. Sheikh, I try not to use for someone who hasn't completed the equivalent, at least, of like seven years of formal training-ish. And actually, I think this is, a gen this is a generous usage in retrospect, but we'll just use it this way. We'll use, make sheikh for people that are like six, seven years formal training. They've done that. And also that they have like some sort of trust with the community. Like people know them, people understand who they are. They have some sort of established track record with, with the people. Uh, some, usually these two kind of come together. And then the other thing to say is that oftentimes um, if someone has, is kind of like really well known to have a title, usually I won't infringe upon that <laughs> unless maybe there's like some ethical issue. Ethical issue will take away any of these titles. Uh, you can attain something because of your educational training and lose it because of your ethical performance, right? Same thing in any other field. Now someone can be certified as this or this or this, they can be licensed as such and such, and what happens, there's an ethical issue, you take their license away, right? We don't have a formal body, but it's the same thing. I, you know, some people I, you know, kind of refer, uh, refuse to call them with a title for various reasons. Um, now, what's the issue here? The issue here is that if someone has earned in some level a title, it's disrespectful to not give it to them. We don't need communist Islam, you know, we're like everyone's equal, yes, we're all brothers, it's true. Uh, and I've said this many times before, some of the ideas that we have, they're kalimatu haqqin urida biha batil. Sayyidina Ali said this statement. It's a true statement, the intent behind it is, is false. <clears throat> so it's true, you know, yes, we're all brothers, but we're not all brothers and sisters. Like there are people who have more rank as far as we can tell. Yes, there's a reality with Allah. That's their reality with Allah. We recognize that too. But there is like some sort of understanding. Like if you're in a hospital administration setting and you have someone who's like a physician, and they're established as a physician, and you start calling them like, I don't know, a custodian or something. Sure, I mean, there's an honor in being a custodian. There's nothing wrong with that. 
just to be part of the system of health, health and taking care of people is an honor. That's true. Maybe they think about that from their own spiritual training. But they're a doctor. <laughs> and you're misleading people by telling them that. And then, and then people simultaneously do both. Right? Take away the title of some people and then give titles to other people. It creates huge chaos. Right? No, I need to know in the end of the day. Who can I go to and ask guidance on my religion? And I have reason to believe that they're going to give me guidance? That's acceptable. I, I need to know that. I don't need to just be like, this person's popular online, so we're going to give them whatever title we feel like, and we're going to put them on big stages and all this kind of stuff. No, this is not It's a part of the insanity of America. Because we don't have an understanding of our religious landscape in terms of scaffolding and, and layers of knowledge and learning and stuff like that. So we just end up like, anyone who makes us feel good is a sheikh, and anyone who says that something we don't like is no longer a sheikh. And if we don't like them because they kind of challenge our power, they're also not a sheikh, because, you know, I need to still be in charge. And just all kinds of weird stuff like that. So obey uh, leaders. If they're giving good, if they're sound, we need to follow them. Otherwise we end up all over the place. And the second half of it was consult uh, others. Conducting consultations before making decisions is a sunnah for all people, and especially for those who are in managerial positions. The person who makes it a habit to consult others does not regret the final decision because it gets the opportunity because he gets the opportunity to evaluate the issue from different perspectives. However, there are criteria for whom to consult. Consultation means consulting with competent, sincere people who do not hesitate to express their opinions, who keep secrets, and who are reliable. It is not right to consult with people who do, who do not have these conditions, that is, who are not competent and sincere, who are afraid to express their opinions, and who are unreliable, as the result would be a wrong guidance on the matter. Importantly, the person who is being consulted must be able to keep a secret because he should not share information with others. Okay? So now we have the second point. Second point is, whenever there's a decision that needs to be made, especially for someone who's in a position of authority, then that decision should be made with the consultation of others. Uh, making especially serious decisions unilaterally is, uh, can lead to major consequences. Sometimes you see this. Like maybe people are they're going to build a masjid, for example. And then they just build it. Like they ask one person, one architect, one architect makes like a design, they just go with the design. So this, is a, this is a big decision. Like if, if you make certain... The architecture is going, as we've talked about many times, right? The architecture is going to influence and affect everything that relates to the culture and the experience of that place. The decision you make is going to affect people's lives for 50 years. It's not just like a passing, hey, we're busy, let's make a decision on the call and let's move forward with it. No, this is like a big decision. SubhanAllah. So architecture is like that. Many things are like that in community life. Yeah, obviously sometimes we have limited resources and stuff, but consultation is good. And then he's saying, who do we take shura with? Take shura with people who are competent and who are sincere and essentially who are trustworthy. Can keep the secret. If it's something that's confidential, they need to be able to keep the confidentiality of that thing. Right? One of the points here is that no, not everybody needs to be consulted. And sometimes there's things that are of public interest. Maybe you bring it in front of the public somehow. That's fine. You you might take them like a general shura, but the, the real serious shura is not taken from everyone. 
the Abu Bakr or Omar, they didn't do this with everyone. Big decisions weren't made with everyone. It wasn't like, let's call everyone who's in Medina and have a public forum and let's vote on it. <laughs> yeah. Fine, people can choose that as their system. If that's like, you know, they look at the different things and they feel like this is the best way to do it, it's fine, you can do that. But, like, the required part of governance in Islam is shura. It's not a particular form of participatory democracy, per se, right? But there has to be, the people who are qualified, they have to be asked. Uh, Sayyidina Umar and Abu Bakr they used to usually gather like the people of Badr. It's like their inner circle. People who witnessed the Battle of Badr, it's like the inner circle. I'm going to ask them and get there because they have really special rank. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said like these people, you know, they have very special rank. So they're going to be consulted. Anyway, take sure and to be reliable. <coughs> to keep the necessary secrets. I think this is becoming a more and more difficult thing for people to do. Because we just talk about too many things and we expose too many things. But we have to learn how to keep uh, secrets that are necessary to be kept. Usually it's just a matter of days, by the way. Like whenever you're doing something on like an organizational level or a community level, usually it's a matter of days, weeks. Maybe a couple months. Uh, okay, we can't talk about this thing yet with other people. It's an internal conversation. Okay, keep it as an internal conversation. Allah give us tawfiq. 39. Be stingy in your religion and morals and generous with your wealth. Do not compromise your religion and morals, but sacrifice your property. Hmm. SubhanAllah. <laughs> I would venture to say that the opposite is largely true. Let me say it again. Be stingy in, like, with the experience of people, not true in the sense of what, you sh what should be done. It says, be stingy in your religion and morals and generous with your wealth. Do not compromise your religion and morals, but sacrifice your property. The opposite would be, sacrifice religion and morals in order to gain more property. And he's saying it should be the opposite, actually. A virtuous person never compromises his religion and morals, but he can compromise his material rights. If necessary, he can even give up his material rights completely. In fact, it is considered a virtue to compromise or give up one's material rights to help other people. And as we said 10,000 times, the key to this is to need very little. If we need very little, then we don't become slave to these things. <coughs> it's easy to give it up. <coughs> not worried about it, you know. Unlike people of Futua, materialistic people never compromise their material rights, but they do not hesitate about compromising their religion and morals. Compromising religion and morality may cause serious problems that will never be compensated in the long run, while material sacrifices can always be compensated. You know, SubhanAllah, someone gives up their honor, they give up their integrity, they give up their trust, their, their reliability. These things are very hard to make them up. But a little bit of money, they can make it up. You know? Khalas speaks for itself. 39. Number 40. Love Allah and His Prophet more than anyone and anything else and follow all their commands with love. Futuwa is the way of love. 
One of the fundamentals of Futuwa is to love Allah and to love all creatures for His sake. As the famous Turkish Sufi and poet Yunus Emre said, We loved the created because of the Creator. We loved the created because of the Creator. I think we've said this here before, but perhaps it bears repeating. There's a very strange phenomenon in the Muslim community where the word Sufi or Sufism, it's treated as if it's like a peanut allergy, you know? <laughs> Can't bring it around because if you bring it around, everyone is just gonna like lose their mind and start choking and their religion's gonna die. And it's like, it's a very strange phenomenon, SubhanAllah. And it's a phenomenon that actually um, reflects a profound ignorance of, of our religious tradition. Not, not a small one, actually, a very profound ignorance. Uh, because if you were to read the biographies of basically everyone that we read about in Muslim history, you'll find that they were connected to the, the Sufis, <laughs> the boogeyman, you know. He's under the bed, be careful, uh, the Sufis. And the people who were like the most critical of the Sufis were the Sufis. And so like all this stuff, like you read, well, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and then you go and you read their biography and you realize, oh wait, they were actually also Sufis. Like <laughs> Ibn Taymiyyah from included amongst them, by the way, just uh, for, uh, as a, uh, basically everyone had some connection. Close, far, distant, not distant, officially, unofficially, sure, there's many ways that could happen. But the point is that it was well understood that this is part of Islam. It's part of Islam under the guidance of the religious teachings. Like not just as a free-for-all, but under the guidance of the law, under the guidance of the belief system that we have of theology and so on. And then if there's like some religious practice that's acceptable there, it's acceptable, alhamdulillah. Uh, so, he says, Turkish Sufi and poet Yunus Emre said, we love the created because of the creator. It's a very profound concept. Right? We love the created because of the creator. Because who made them? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's Allah. Yunus Emre is a very nice TV show. Anyone watch it? Did anyone watch it when it was on Netflix? Yeah, it's only a couple of people. It's very nice, mashallah. You should watch it. Uh, and now you have to subscribe to the Turkish channel. I subscribe to it on principle. Even if I didn't, even if I didn't watch it, I probably still subscribe to it. It's like at least put my money towards some media production that at least at some level represents our values. Even if a lot of the story, like the Salahuddin one, every every time we watch it, I'm making dua that Allah forgives them. Because <laughs> Allah, like may Allah forgive the people who made the series because it's so, like some of the depictions are so off. Like it's clearly not the history that happened. I mean, actually, one of the core baseline parts of the story is not even true in the first place. This idea that like he was raised under Dean and he thought he was his son and stuff like that, it's not even true in the first place. So don't trust any of the history of it. Just like get excited because it's Muslims and like there's certain character and stuff. But don't trust the history, please. But Yunus Emre is a very nice show. You can watch it on their channel. Very nice show, mashallah. Really beautiful. It's not, uh, you know, like Earth to Grow, all the other ones are endless staring at people and endless, uh, endless battle scenes, you know? It's like, it's basically you're just rotating between staring at people and battle scenes. But Yunus Emre is no battle, basically. It's all just a story. It's a, it's a story of 
Yunus Emre was like a judge. He was a faqih and a judge. And then he realized that that route was empty for him. So he went down a different route. And so it was like his relationship with that experience and stuff. It's very beautiful. Uh, he said, It is love for the sake of Allah that produces social relationships which endure all hardships and trials. As opposed to social relationships based on temporary attributes such as personal interest or beauty, which are ephemeral. It is the love of Allah and the love of other people for the sake of Allah that is the eternal love that will continue both in this world and in the hereafter. I think we've explained this sufficiently at this point. Love is the basis of futua morality. The relationship between Allah and His servants is a relationship of love. The relationship between the Prophet and his ummah is a relationship of love. The relationship among the members of the ummah is a relationship of love. And the relationship between the Muslims and other creatures is a relationship of love. The following hadith describes this beautifully. Whoever has three qualities, he can enjoy the sweetness of faith. Loving Allah and His Messenger more than anything else, loving others solely for the sake of Allah, and hating disbelief and sinning as much as being thrown into a burning fire. The concept of sweetness of faith, halawat al-iman, mentioned in the hadith is very meaningful. In this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ informs us that a belief, that belief has a spiritual sweetness and that it can be tasted by those who have these three characteristics. From this, we understand that faith is not only a matter of philosophy or theology based on proof or inference, but rather an action whose spiritual pleasure is felt in the heart. Unfortunately, in our century, one of the values we have lost Due to the academizing of religious education, the politicizing and ideologizing of religious discourse, and the predominance of economy and politics over spirituality and spirit, is the sweetness of faith. SubhanAllah, that's a powerful sentence. In case you checked out on me. Unfortunately, in our century, one of the values we have lost, due to the academizing of religious education, the politicizing and ideologizing of religious discourse, and the predominance of economy and politics over spirituality and spirit is the sweetness of faith. It's one of the things that we have lost. SubhanAllah. And it has no, it has no ladha to it. It has no halawa to it. You know? And we should like try within ourselves to have some understanding of this. This idea that there's like there's some ruh to it, there's some soul to it. In, in American culture, you would say like there's a soul. It has soul. Something has soul. Like what does it mean? It's hard to explain what it means. If you know what it means, you know what it means. If you don't know what it means, you have to work on cultivating it until you know what it means. Right? But there's a reality to our religious experience is supposed to have some soul to it. And many of us probably have experienced that. No, I was even this week talking to someone. He uh, came from Egypt, and he grew up in the Azhar system. You know? Some people they grew up in the system, from they have family members who are in the system, fathers in the system, grandfathers in the system. From their childhood, they grew up in the system. So you find them like really, really strong. It's a really, mashallah. Like this brother, he's very young actually, Sheikh. Sheikh is very young, and. Um, you know, people in the community look at him like he's this young guy or whatever. Um, he grew up in the system. Like he's a qari on the ten qira'at, on an international level, you know. Like he's mutqim, ten qira'at. He, 
his, his job before he came to America was in Mashaykhat al-Azhar, in the department that does research for fatawa that is then raised to Shaykh al-Azhar for approval and publication. So it's, it's a high position. Yeah, he's a young guy. Maybe I don't know how old he is. Maybe 30 or something. But as a high level of specialization at, at that age, it was because he grew up in it, you know. And we were talking like, you know, come to America and this and that. One of the things that came up was, there's just no room. Like, alhamdulillah, there's khair that we can do here. There's good that we can do. We can teach people. We can help people. We can try. But it's like, there's something that's missing. Like, just life is not this, not the same. Yeah, we if we're in in Egypt, the currency is always going up, and like everyone is struggling to survive, and nobody can eat meat, and like it's a really difficult situation, you know. People are really struggling, and but like there's some flavor to it, you know. Like life has some taste to it. You miss that, Subhanallah. Uh, so our Islam should have some flavor to it. It should be some sweetness to like I'm worshiping Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I'm remembering Allah. I have this connection with my Creator. I love the people because, regardless of the way that they are sometimes, but we love the people because Allah created everything. And all these people are Bani Adam. They're all the children of Adam. Reviving Fatuwa will enable us to regain the taste of faith. Our task should be to taste the sweetness of faith that we have forgotten in the modernization process and to let others taste it. The three issues mentioned in this hadith are among the basic principles of Fatuwa. Let us consider first the issue of loving Allah and His beloved Messenger more than anything else. We have already talked about this hadith a couple times, so I'm, I'm just going to read. We learn from this hadith that faith is not only a matter of mind, but also a matter of heart, love, and affection. Allah and His Messenger وسلم, are our eternal lovers with whom we bond with endless love. Allah and His Messenger وسلم, are not just authorities who give us orders as implied by those who misunderstand and misrepresent religion as being only a set of rules. It rather consists of the combination of faith, ingenuity, and love. Those who know Allah and His Messenger love them wholeheartedly, but those who do not know them are deprived of this love. Just as the lover obeys his beloved with great pleasure, so it is that the people of Futuwa find great honor and pleasure in obeying Allah's orders and commands. The second point emphasized in the hadith is related to interpersonal relations. The Prophet remind us, reminds us that in order to enjoy faith, our relationships with others should be based on love for Allah's sake, not on interest and other expectations. We've talked about this again before. As we explained above, unconditional love for Allah is one of the basic rules of futubu. When this advice is applied, there emerges what we can call a society of love. That is, a society in which people are connected to each other by a bond of unconditional love, and people naturally accrue great happiness and pleasure from living in such a society. Yes, subhanAllah. You know? Places have all kinds of issues. Don't get me wrong, but there's some things, you know. We were on a, a plane in Egypt recently. We're on this plane, and it goes out uh, to like the runway, you know, to take off. And just sitting there for a long time. Everyone's kind of like murmuring to each other. Egyptians culturally are a little bit different than maybe like Americans. Americans don't, like now at this point, are kind of hesitant to talk to each other. When they start talking, it's a little bit awkward. Like, it's really strange. There's, there seems to be like a loss of understanding of how to get along, you know. 
but uh, so this happens. The Egyptians start like talking to each other, you know, doing things and whatever. Then the pilot comes on, and he starts making this announcement about how the plane is delayed and there's some issue. It's mechanically off, and we need to go back to the terminal, and everyone will have to get off the plane and so on and so forth, right? But as he's doing it. <coughs> As he's doing it, he keeps pausing a lot. And he can't, it's clear that even though he's Egyptian, it's clear that his English is easier than Arabic for him. Right? He's like kind of stumbling through the formal Arabic. Like, it's like he's talking like this, you know. <laughs> Everyone's just like, okay, okay. <laughs> and some guy in the middle of the plane, he just yells out. He's like, Sali al Nabi Hatigi. Which means like, he's <laughs> like, make salah on the Prophet and it will come to your mind. Because it's like part of the culture, right? Something's going on, it's always like, Sali al Nabi, Allahumma Sali al Sayyidina Muhammad. And then like the conversation will continue, right? But this guy in the middle of the plane, you, the pilot can't hear anyone on the plane, right? Like there's the door, but he just, he's like, Salih, maybe I take everyone on the plane just starts laughing and like starts talking to each other. It's like a party on the plane, you know? Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. SubhanAllah, it's like totally different experience. It's really fun. Planes are funny because you learn interesting things. Just yesterday I was flying and I, we, we landed in San Diego and I was like, man, I, I, know, I don't know if this is normal, but I noticed it yesterday. It was such a San Diego experience. It was that you parked at the gate, you're stopped. Seatbelt sign is off. Usually there's that break before you park at the gate. You can start getting up a little bit, getting your stuff. And then the door opens and people start to get off, right? There's like a little time in between. Usually people start getting up at that time. They start getting up, they get their stuff ready, stuff like that. And this had a stop in San Diego and then it continued to Dallas. So I was like, okay, maybe, because we parked it, nobody got up. Like two people got up, started taking their stuff down. Everyone else was sitting there. I was like, oh, clearly everyone's going to Dallas, you know. The stewardess makes the announcement. She's like, if you're going to Dallas, then uh, please stay seated in your spot so we can count how many of you, you know, make sure everyone is here. And there's, there's five of you. So I was like, so all these people are sticking up in San Diego. No one is getting up. It was like a competition to see who can get up last, you know. The gate opens, the door opens, then people start getting up, like everyone just relaxed, mashallah, it's like San Diego, you know. No, nowhere to go, just, just you know, oh, okay, the gate's open, I guess the door's open, we can get off, okay, yeah, why don't you get off first, just go ahead, you know, I'm just gonna, it was like no one was moving, subhanAllah, it was so interesting. It's the longest it's ever taken me to get off a plane. <laughs> it was a fascinating, subhanAllah, experience, but it's interesting, they're like small cultural kind of like taste you get. Anyways, there goes the finishing on time. Finish on time. Second point emphasized in the hadith is related to interpersonal relations. <coughs> you said that. Third point mentioned in the hadith is related to abhorring disbelief and running away from adopting the morals and behaviors of unbelievers. The Prophet وسلم, said, who who, He who tries to imitate a people is one of them. This requires a small tangent because this is misused a lot. As such, those who try to imitate the good people become one of them. And those who try to imitate evil people become one of them. When it comes to morality, this rule has an important warning for the fetha. You are counted among those who you resemble in your morals, thoughts, and life. A few points, I'll try to make them quickly. Uh, 
ان لم تكونوا مثلهم فان تشبها بالكرام فلاح There's different narrations on it, but it's basically like try to imitate the way of the good people even if you're not like them because imitating them will lead to success. Okay? And the Prophet ﷺ that whoever tries to be like a people, they're from them. What's, what's missed in this hadith is the verbal form of this. Tashabbah okay? is the verb on the form of tafa'ala. Sigha to tafa'ala this form in the Arabic language indicates a um, like that one has put effort into doing them. So tashabaha is not tashabaha. Tashabaha is that you look similar. Tashabaha is that you tried to look similar. That's why in his translation he used the word try. So the problem is not that you do something that a non-Muslim does, if that's like the cultural norm where you live. So for example, maybe this will clarify it. For us in America today, to wear pants and a shirt, there's no issue with that, okay? It's not like I'm trying to be like the non-Muslims and so I'm abandoning Muslim traditional clothes, even though some Muslim places wore shorts and shirts and pants, but nonetheless, I'm abandoning it so that I can Wear this clothes. No, that's what I'm doing. This is what everyone wears. As long as it's halal and sharia, it's tashabaha. We look like the same, but it's not intentional. However, if you lived in like India, for example, in like 1800, okay, and all of your people dressed in a particular way, and you intentionally dress the way that the British colonizers look, so that you can look like the colonizers, that's probably haram. Is you did the same thing, but the, the reason you did it and the why that you did it and everything else is different. Then it becomes a problem. So it's not just that we can't be similar to other people. We actually should be similar to other people as much as we can. Uh, and when we're not, then you know, we're not. Um, it's also important to note here that sometimes something can be not haram in and of itself but can also still be disliked because it causes a person to look like someone who's doing something wrong okay so like when vapes were like first becoming popular and young people used to come all the time like what well, can we vape because like it's not smoking it's not the same and so on and so forth and we just tell them first of all we don't have enough research this was 10 years ago we don't have a research on this right now to come to that conclusion. You came to that conclusion because you want to do it, but we don't have enough research on what's this doing to human bodies uh, to say whether or not you can do this thing or not. But that's not the point. You shouldn't be doing it. Why shouldn't you be doing it? Because you're going to look like you're doing something haram. So you shouldn't be doing it. It's, it's sufficient, actually. It doesn't even have to be something haram. It shouldn't look like something haram. Because if it looks like it, then that deals with the honor of the person. The honor of the person has to be protected. Conclusion. Futuwa again. Today it is necessary to be vigilant and warn all our youth against imitating the liberal understanding of morality. On the one hand, the liberal understanding is based on the autonomy of the individual. On the other hand, it is also based on the post-truth understanding of morality, which is in turn based on extreme subjectivity and relativism. If the people of Futuwa want to enjoy the taste of faith, they should take a stand against these moral understandings and lifestyles which are based on disbelief and denial of God. 
and they should not fall into the trap of their attractive advertisements by being fully aware of their ugliness, baseness, and inconsistency. I hope, I hope, I hope that people are taking a lesson from everything that's happening in Gaza. Allah help our brothers and sisters. Which is like, kifaya, 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 believing that other people are better than us and have something that we don't have. Kifaya, it's enough. Okay? There's no moral high ground, there's no political high ground, there's no civilizational high ground, there's no intellectual high ground. You know, there's actually, if you look at the people of Gaza, there's not even a technological high ground. The innovation of these people and the things that they invent with nothing, and the stuff that they're able to invent and come up with, and the you know things that they put together and, and discover, like it's incredible. Subhanallah. There's not even that. Like kifaya, just have some. We we like enough with worshiping everything else. Alhamdulillah, a couple hundred years have passed. It's time for us to move past this, and to recognize that we have something ourselves to offer the world, and I don't have to be like everyone else. Recognize like. You know, like, oh, you know, if people are so much nicer in this, but I'm like, look, people used to tell, used to say that in, in Egypt all the time. Like, sometimes life in Cairo is rough. It's a little bit tough, you know. Like, well, people are so nice in America. I'm like, people have money. Now, if you put people in America in the conditions that people in Egypt are living in, like, subhanAllah, you would see, you would see incredible, horrible things. You, you wouldn't see it. It, people wouldn't last it, You know Like the average person in America If you told them that Your entire money is going to go to your electric bill Or like in Pakistan too Some of the Some people that I know that have family in Pakistan I said they're, And they're like well off people Their entire income is going to the electricity bill There's nothing left afterwards now What do you eat? What do you drink? What do you you want to talk about how people act? They, if they have some semblance of decency and those are their conditions, that's actually, mashallah, like very impressive. Uh, in, in fact, the post-truth claim is a simple fallacy because it presents itself as an absolute truth. <laughs> yeah, subhanAllah. If there is such, thing, uh, is such, thing as such a truth as post-truth, then the claim of post-truth is false because the existence of truth is admitted. Following the argument. This is the response to skepticism, excessive skepticism, yeah. Like, well, how, I can't know that that's true. Okay? So how do you know the position you just took is true? You see the issue? <laughs> that's, that's not true. We can't trust that. Okay, well, then what you just said is not true. You can't trust that. So you're like, you're running in a circle now. It's post-truth. Okay, but then your claim that we're post-truth is a claim to a truth. So, it's like... This a big joke or what's the situation? Uh, the same fallacy applies to the moral relativism approach. Is the claim that everything is relative also relative? If it is relative, then we do not need to accept it. It only binds those who adopt it. If it is not relative and true, then there is, non, there is a non-relativistic truth. In this case, this statement is self-contradictory. Yeah, anyways. Today it is our duty to defend reality, right, and truth against the post-truth movement. There is reality. There is truth, and there is wrong. While the post-truth current emerged as an alternative to the established ideologies and orthodoxies that collapsed one after the other in the West, it also turned, quite paradoxically, into yet another strong and oppressive ideology that severely punishes those who object or question it. 
Understanding and believing in the autonomy of the individual has alienated people from their religion, families, nature, and worst of all, from each other and from themselves. This alienation also undermined the foundation of self-knowledge, ma'arifat al-nafs, good friendship, and brotherhood. In the face of all these fluctuations and confusion, the morality of Futuwa stands out like a lighthouse that has been illuminating the path of youth for centuries. For an honorable and virtuous youth, it is necessary to return to Futuwa morality and benefit from its light. For this purpose, the first thing to do is to reconnect strongly with Allah, the Prophet وسلم, and with one another, with a faith based on love. Our beloved Prophet وسلم, brought us the best of morals and presented the best example of morality in the world by living and practicing what he said and preached. Our duty is to follow his footsteps and to apply his holy commands with love. Let us conclude with the following poem by Mawlana Jalaluddin Belkhi Rumi which captures the essence of Futuwa. Be like the sun in compassion and mercy. Be like the night in covering faults. Be like a running river in generosity. Be like the dead in anger and in irritability. Be like the earth in humility and integrity. Either appear as you are or be as you appear. As we underlined at the beginning of the book, our honor is faith, our light is knowledge, our virtue is morality, our way is futuwa. Uh, any questions or comments or anything before we make closing khatam dua? Alhamdulillah. Great uh, accomplishment to finish another book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially on like a bigger political level, those are big, big topics that need to be worked through properly. Um, yeah, under like the balance of power and how is that done and so on. Interestingly, the balance in power seems to have often been in Muslim societies was that the ulama. 
and the righteous people tended to have some level of financial independence that wasn't dependent on the state and the people and they were with the people and the people loved them and so that was kind of like some level of check on the on the political power um, because in the end of the day like and that's why they were so worried about them that's why the imams all basically were punished by the rulers of their times so very interesting yeah Yeah. Uh, I don't think they would become sheikh at 40. They would stop being shabab. They stop being shab at 40. That's what they usually say. They stop being a youth at 40. But you don't necessarily become a sheikh. Probably it would be more like after 60. Yeah. Yeah. But they usually use it, like at least in my customary experience, outside of like the Gulf, right? In the Gulf, obviously, you have this idea of Sheikh being used as a title that has some sort of other usage. But um, like in community life, when I oftentimes with Ya Sheikh or something, they're usually using it with like some sort of religious connotation. They don't mean that they're a Sheikh, but they're trying to say like, you know, you're a, you know, someone who cares about Deen or whatever. I, I personally don't like that, but um, you know. You already, you've already heard my spiel on that, so um, I, ju I just don't, I think that we have a lot of confusion around matters of knowledge and it causes a lot of, like, I don't think the average Muslim community member can even actually understand. It's kind of like when you're a kid, right, <laughs> forgive me for this analogy, when you're a kid you think you know everything and you think all of your opinions are right. And you think that your parents don't understand anything. And that's how it looks from your perspective. And the parents watching and the parents like, you are making mistakes. There's no reason for you to make this mistake. You're making your life harder for no reason. You're doing things that you do not need to do. You know, From the parent perspective, you see it. It's like super clear. Um, like in my limited experience in community life, many people in our community are making their lives way harder than they need to be for no reason. And it's mostly because like certain understandings of what Islam is are just wrong. The pieces are not put in the right place. Uh, all these pieces are in the wrong place. And then like you have people, like it didn't need to be like that. Uh, but the person doesn't even realize it. You know? So 
Actually, this ties to the first question now. I think that the best way for children and by extension everyone to know what it's like to have a real relationship with Allah is to somehow, some way, spend time with people who are awliya. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's not the easiest answer. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, subhanAllah, Ibn Atta'ala, he said something along the lines of, you know, subhanAllah, who made the way to knowing, made basically it's so that when someone knows the awliya, they'll know Allah. Because now they see it, they understand it. It's, it's like, you know, kids are actually really natural in some ways. And they, they, they learn more quickly and more re real through experience, not through being told. Uh, we're actually the same. Uh, we, but because we get older and we like, re rely on our minds a lot, and we think that everything can be done through like explanation. And then you see things and you're like, oh, subhanAllah, actually that was fixed not through explanation. That was fixed through a different experience. I had a different experience and it changed the understanding of the person. So I think that kids are like that. You know? If kids can be... One of, the, one of the things I've seen, you know, my wife was saying this, subhanAllah, it was so true. She was like, kids are so sincere. When we were talking about our Umrah trip, She's like, you can see the effect of the ziyara on their face as soon as it happens. It's ajeeb. Like, you take a kid to the masjid in Nebui, don't tell them anything. Just walk them in, take them over there. And this is where the Prophet told us to pray to our God. It's a garden from the gardens of paradise. They don't question you. They're just like, oh, subhanAllah. Let's pray. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Prophet is here. We're supposed to make salam, salam to the Prophet and We just walk by. This is where he's buried. Right? They say, Assalamu alaykum ya Rasulullah. They say, Assalamu alaykum ya Rasulullah. We make dua for the for, for, to Allah. We make dua to the Prophet. You know, we do all of these things, not to the Prophet, but we make dua. We say salam to the Prophet. And then you look at their face afterwards, and like, SubhanAllah, their face changed. They go to the Kaaba, their face changes. SubhanAllah. Like, you can see it. It's ajeeb. So I think this is the best way. Yeah. So, like I personally, a lot of experiences in my life, and I'm talking about older in my life, like this is probably maybe like eight, nine years ago. I don't feel like I understood prayer until I saw a particular sheikh pray and the way that he prayed, it just, it actually hit me. I was like, oh, that's prayer. I've been seeing prayer, I've been seeing prayer for, I don't know how many years it was at that point, right? And it wasn't a long prayer. It, it wasn't like they took a really long time. It was, it was just like, you felt like when he said Allahu Akbar, he really meant Allahu Akbar. And, and like, when he read the Qur'an, like he meant to read the Qur'an. It wasn't, uh, and when he made dua, you, I, I felt like he's actually making dua. It's not just like, there's some things that need to get said. We, we can't judge these things because some people are really good at hiding them, by the way. Some people will make it look like they're just saying it, but internally they're not just saying it, they're really saying it, you know? 
but they do that to keep it hidden between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? But, so we can't judge, but some people are just like, subhanAllah, it's like, ah, oh, that's what dua is. I never understood what dua was until that point. Like, I can honestly say that, like, as a person, I didn't, I didn't know dua. My wife, on the other hand, she always knew dua. And I know why she knew dua. She's always known dua because her mother is a person who makes very serious dua. Dua is really serious. And it's like, a, it's like a set tradition in the family. You know? The eldest one in the family makes dua for every single member of the family and so on. Like there's certain things. And you see people who take, they take this really serious. You know? I think that's the best thing. Of course, some base knowledge and you know, teach them names of Allah. Try to teach them duas that they can use in different places. But I think that a lot of a lot of teaching, as I said before, I think last week I belabored this a little bit, but the best way for those things to be taught is for them to be to happen in the place where they should be happen happening and to happen in a very real way. So uh, let me try to think of an example of what that means. Like we need to see Iman. There's a brother I was talking to recently. I'll give you an example. It amazed me. He's in like uh, entertainment. I, I shouldn't specify it too much. He's in some sort of like entertainment thing. And there was a distribution deal that he had been working on for a couple years up to this point. Like several years in the making, two, three years in the making. It was very important for his financial stability and stuff like that. And as this whole Palestine stuff unfolded, it turned out that the guy at the head of this distribution thing was a Zionist. Okay? So he's like, and I was saying everything that I was saying about this situation, you know? So things got, he's like, so they dropped the distribution. Uh, like all the talks that have been going on for a couple of years, they, they dropped it. And he was telling me the story. And the next, the next word that came out of his mouth was, Alhamdulillah, I dodged a bullet. It wasn't like, oh man, I put all those years into that and then I lost it. It was 100%, like 100% natural without any consideration. Alhamdulillah, I dodged a bullet. I wouldn't have wanted that in the first place. You know, I was like, wow, that's Iman. Like that, that's a moment of Iman. Like you saw Iman in that. So I think that the best way for children to, to learn these things is that they, they see Iman and they can feel it and they can understand it and be like, oh, that's, that's what that looks like. And not out of like a, not out of a show. You know, sometimes it feels like there's, not, they don't need to see a show of Iman. <laughs> they don't need to see someone trying to show them what Iman looks like. They need to just see it, you know. Allah uh, Alam, that's the best that I got. Yes, yes, yes. You could probably call them Shaykh. They're a Shaykh of Quran. They're a Shaykh of Qira'ah. You know, they're a Qa'ad. It's interesting, and, and I've mentioned this, I think, before, that in Azhar you have a clear distinction on this. 
Um, there's a way that you, the white part of the hat, you tie it, you use a certain cloth and you tie it in a certain way if you're a qari versus if you're a scholar. And the color of the hat is a brighter red for the qari and it's a darker like maroonish red for the scholar. Um, and so it's understood. Like this person, you talk to them about Qur'an. But you don't ask fatwa from them. And, uh, unless they have both. You know? So that's why you'll see in uh, like some of the pictures of Shaykh al-Husri, rahimahullah, when you see Shaykh al-Husri's picture with his hat, he actually doesn't wear the turban of the Qari. He wears the turban of the Alim because he was a scholar in addition to being a Qari. So, uh, so you'll see that too. The Qari one is like a brighter red and it's the turban part, I mean the tarbush part, the hat part is usually shorter and closer to the head and it's a brighter red and then the white part is thinner and it has like the fraying on the top. And the scholar one is a darker red and it will usually be a little bit taller and the white part won't have any, it will be just solid and it will usually be thicker, a little bit thicker uh, than the other one, just as a side note. Yeah. So, yeah, you call them qari. But I think, you know, there's not like... It's important to understand, it is. Because someone could be a qari, but they don't actually, they, they shouldn't be giving fatwa. And the answer that they're giving could be very wrong. Uh, they might know what they need to know about salah. They might not be doing able to do something else. You know. Allahu Yeah. Yes. How would I? How would I incorporate the academia scale into the hierarchy that I'm talking about? Which academia are we talking about? Western or Eastern? Uh, if you if so, if we're talking about like Egypt or basically Islamic universities, then if they finish the bachelor's level, they're pretty much at Sheikh level. But depending on the country and the place, you might use words differently. Like um, I was thinking about this recently, but like different. You know, obviously, the subcontinent has its own terminologies. Like someone who graduates bachelor's level basically is an alim. And then there's like a year of, you could do your tachasus year and become a mufti. But like in Egypt, for example, nobody uses the title mufti. Even if you have mufti training, you don't, no one will use the title mufti unless they're like the actual mufti of the country, right? But if you graduated with like certain degrees, you're just understood to have that level of knowledge already. So they don't use this terminology, you know. Like, was actually talking to some some of the mashaykh in Egypt about this recently, um, and if you're if you have like a master's or PhD, then in the world that I came from, which was like the Arab world, it's a little bit different than the subcontinent world. Like usually, they won't use alim for a bachelor's graduate. That's not a seven years is not enough to be an alim. You have to be like 20 years, you know. Like if you did your PhD, you're an alim, you know. Yeah, the bachelor's not an alim. And 
even master's degree. Master's degree in Azhar takes like five years. It's not, it takes four or five years. It's painful. It's not easy to, to do. A master's degree is serious. You know, someone has a master's from Azhar, they put a lot of work in. Um, so, Salahu Alam, we don't have to, these aren't like revelation issues. It's just custom issues, trying to help us understand things, but they're not. Uh, when it comes to the Western system, let's be honest, like it, I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Someone can have a PhD from Islamic studies in the West, they're not a sheikh. Let alone an alim, let alone anything. Right. It's a totally different educational system. Uh, if, if you do a, if you do a high school or bachelor's in Azhar, you're required to do certain things. You're required to take like the base level knowledge that aids a person to be able to carry on the religion and teach it to other people. If you do that in the, if you get a PhD in the West, that's not part of your training. Your training is to be highly specialized in a particular area of Islamic studies, um, usually with neglect to other areas that makes you actually not truly specialized in the area that you're supposed to be specialized in. And then you, you, you know, but like ask them to give a khutbah, you can't give a khutbah. Unless they did something else. Alhamdulillah, we have a lot of people now who like, they recognize the limitation on this, and so they get traditional Islamic studies training on the side of their academic training. That's great, alhamdulillah. I think like the Western Academy gives people an opportunity to do really serious work. So if they can combine their like religious education with the Western one, that's great. You know, like uh, some people are really strong. Dr. Miriam Shaybani, hafidhullah. Sheikha, she's a very knowledgeable person. Yeah, she has her PhD in Islamic law and lectured at Harvard and did all these things. Like she's great, but she's she has ilm too. Just outside of her, you know, a lot of people have done that. A lot of people are like that. Alhamdulillah, now it's changing a lot. Last 10, 15 years, it's changing a lot. It used to be that you didn't really have anyone like that. Dr. Jackson was like the closest thing, and he had, mashallah, very strong uh, Azhar training actually. Not officially, but unofficially, Azhar training. So, I'll preserve him. Um, so, try to understand. Sometimes I say things, please try to catch all of the words of what was said. PhD in and of itself from America, la yusawi shay. Illa if it's udifa ilayhi, ghayruhu min al ulum al sharia and turathiya and mawrutha min al ulama and akabil. Alhamdulillah. Uh, like if it's connected to true learning, then alhamdulillah, it's true learning. It's not, it's not. Well, like a lot of people, degrees are not. Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghidda, by the way. Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghidda, he had basically a bachelor's degree. Technically on paper, he had a bachelor's degree and a couple of like, graduate diplomas. And he was one of the biggest scholars in the last century. With almost no debate, except for the people who didn't who had like a little bit of uh, intellectual rivalry with him, let's say. But he's pretty much agreed to be one of the greatest scholars of the last century. Yeah, yeah. Many people in Syria are like that, by the way. You know, they're like very, very high level ulama. Maybe they don't have an official degree or something. Maybe they have a lower degree, but they actually, their actual knowledge is far greater because they studied with Mashaykh and stuff like that. Uh, so it's not like so. Sorry, this is like obviously something I care about a lot on <laughs> this issue. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what is your background 
CD, this is even the worst one. C CD is nothing. <laughs> CD is like the most confusing one ever. It's like, it's like I want to, I don't know what to do. So I'm, it's called, CD just means Sayyidi. It's just like the title of respect, Mr. <laughs> you appreciate the person. You think well of them. Maybe you don't know what to call them. Maybe you don't. Uh, but again, like some of this stuff, a lot of this stuff is cultural. Depends on where you're coming from, where you are. Different countries will use it in different ways, stuff like that. So, but technically, it doesn't indicate anything in and of itself. <coughs> again, it depends on which place you're in. In Egypt, they'll use it a lot out of like adab, but usually they use it in connection to the person's title still, like Sayyidina Sheikh. They say Sayyidina Sheikh, Sayyidina Sheikh, Sayyidina Sheikh. They always say it like that, you know. It's just out of like respect. They don't want to just call you Sheikh, so they say the Sheikh. Like you're our Sayyid and our Sheikh. I say it comes from the word Sayyid. So like, obviously Sayyid in the subcontinent usually refers to Ahmed Bayt. It's also something you'll see in the old and more older usage. If the like, person is an imam and they're a sheikh and they're Ahmed Bayt, then you call them Sayyid. A Sayyid, a sheikh, so and so, because they're Ahmed Bayt and they're a scholar. Yeah, so it's different, it depends on that. In the American context, it's just like, I don't know. Uh, people use it for, for respect, but it's not a. In and of itself, it doesn't necessarily indicate anything. Well, um, yes, Kelly. Mm-hmm, alhamdulillah. You, you opened with talking about um, obeying legitimate leaders. Mm-hmm. So since we are, you know, our leaders are several levels, you know, if we take it to our community level where we have these alleged sheds that are not learned, they've mm -hmm. never studied, um, but yet we give them these titles. Yeah. And then you tell us, you know, how do we know that they're legitimate? Mm. Um, well, so what are we supposed to do? When you say 
Yeah. Well. Um, first things first is that a person's educational background is like step one. They could still be a band leader. Like they, someone could have proper education. They could be very, very knowledgeable. They could be, and they could not know how to employ that knowledge properly in their context, or they could have some level of corruption internally or whatever else it might be. So there's knowledge is one piece, and then other things on top of that. You know, I think that um, practically speaking, I think there's two things that we can try to do. Number one is that we should treat Islamic leadership and knowledge as a profession like anything else is. It's not, it's not learned by a couple hours, it's not mastered by a couple hours, it's not, community work is not done by someone giving a few hours here and there. Community work is done by people giving it their all. And that means that we have to have institutions that actually train true people of knowledge and we have to have institutions that allow them to serve the community. Okay? That's outside of what we already have and everything else is absolutely fundamental to any successful Muslim community or civilizational project. The reality is that if you produce a hundred scholars, maybe a handful of them will be really good for community life. Some of them will be good for doing research, some of them will be doing this, some of them will be doing that, some of them will fall off, some of them won't finish, some of them will be corrupt. But you can never have good leaders if you don't have institutions that at least make that a possibility. If we're just relying on, hopefully we'll be able to come up with a few people. You know, it doesn't work like that. You know. Is that why the Mishnah has started the seminary? Yeah. Yeah, we, I mean, we have a seminary so that we can teach. Hopefully people can learn, and then as they learn, they can, you know, have different levels of engagement with community. The hope is that, my dream is that after the two-year program, we have another, like, two or three years that's now for full-time students. And then after those two or three years for full-time students, probably another two years specialization. The first two or three years would be still general. And then the two or three years after that would be specialization in either like, probably fiqh or aqidah. Um, but I don't know if we'll ever get there, you know. It needs, it needs a... Uh, Are the local mission supporting you? It's a different institution. <laughs> local missions are polite, alhamdulillah, for the most part, at least when I see them. Um, but in the end of the day, everything takes money. That's what it comes down to, right? Like, it, if someone's gonna study, someone's gonna teach. It takes money, so we have to build these institutions. That's uh, one point. The second point is that, uh, like, alhamdulillah, we live in a place that does allow us to do number one and allows us to like do other things. If institutions are not meeting our needs, we can always do new things, we can do other things. We can, put our, we can put our focus and our emphasis and our money and our time in other things. So, you know, I think it's good if it, a lot of money has been put into a lot of the institutions that exist. If they can fulfill the needs of the community, that's good. And sometimes there's multiple layers of needs, you know. 
like uh, the different people will do different things. Allah Mustan, Allah help us. The way the way I look at it is that we just have to try to do the work. We have to try to do what's right, and hopefully, as we do that, things will begin to change. Um, like we've had a lot of masajid copy a lot of our programming. We've had masajid actually start that basically copy our language, our programming, everything. And all the money is put into the masjid and the control is put into the people who run the masjid. And then we're just like still on the side, you know. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, rather, I'd rather have that happen than have someone try to come over and like do a hostile takeover and dictate everything the way that it's going to be done or something. Do your own thing, alhamdulillah. Uh, but inshallah, things will, alhamdulillah. The thing is, with Islam is that we have to always teach. We have to teach, we have to learn. We have to teach, we have to learn. It's nobody's... Uh, one of the beautiful things about Islam, it's not exclusive to anyone. You teach, you learn. You teach, you learn. You teach, you learn. You put the work in, you learn. SubhanAllah, like in... The, the majlis was built on this institution that we used to go to in, in Egypt called Madhyafa. Madhyafa al-Sheikh Ismail Sadiq al-Azim, rahimahullah. It was like a sheikh who used to teach people. When they would come, he would feed them, you know. And then after he passed away, the space, which is probably like the size of this room, like literally ulama in every country were trained in a room that was this size, you know. You go to the room, it's 100 people. Those 100 people, are they're about what they're doing. And he passed away, the Shaykh passed away, the room is still there. Someone's a caretaker every time. And then they have shayukh that come and teach. Every day there's like three, four Shaykhs come and teach some science. This one's teaching hadith, this one's teaching Arabic, this one's teaching fiqh, this one's teaching tazkiyah, this one's all of them. Every day, 50 students come, 100 students come. Every time they come, brings them the tea, brings them a little biscuit, feeds them, you know. There was like one or two places like that when we were in Egypt. Right now there's like five or six. They're always at classes. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I keep getting new messages. Like Sahat and Native and Saad. Sahat and Dah. Sahat Kida. Sahat Kida. Madhya Fakida. I'm like, wow, subhanAllah. Like people are learning. People are teaching. It's all Indonesians, by the way. Every, <laughs> every place you go, you look at the pictures, it's like all Indonesians and Malaysians. Majority Indonesians and Malaysians. SubhanAllah. You want to get an indication of where to go if you want to go somewhere. 20, 30 years, you know, subhanAllah of doing that. From the time we were there, it was like that. People who were in all the durus and like working hard are the Indonesians and Malaysians. And their countries support them. It's beautiful, actually. Malaysian, Malaysian government had buildings in Cairo. The students, they live in them. On the bottom floor, they have a musalla and they have a restaurant. Because we would go eat at the restaurant. It was like the only place you can get some little bit spicy food and different things, you know? <laughs> so all the foreigners would go to those restaurants, the Malaysian restaurants, would eat there. And then the students, they live in the building. Shiuch would come and teach there and stuff like that. All right, it's great. One last thing. Yeah. These individuals, then we don't recall them as sheikh. We don't refer to them as imam. They should then be referred to as brother only. Is that what I'm hearing? If someone doesn't deserve a title, we don't have to give it to them. But, you know, it's, it's good also not to cause fitna. Like, in the sense of, it's not... 
like I said, if, if I, maybe someone's not as qualified as I think that they should be for the title that they have. But if they're generally known to have that title, I probably won't like rock the boat too much. Me personally, I don't know. <laughs> That's why I'm a little bit hesitant what I say, yeah, how I, how I, how I say this, yeah, because, yeah, in the end, I think we just have to, we have to move in a good direction. That's what it basically comes down to. And, um, 